in 2018, you may recall, Emily, the servers came out in droves to the Capitol to tell legislators, we do not like this proposal that eliminates the tip credit. We think it's going to cost some of us jobs, and we don't think it's going to make us more money. So let's leave the tip credit uh, in place. Let's leave the tipping system as we understand it right now in place. That was the mood around this issue. Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? All right, I think we're both starting our day just in shotgunning some caffeine. It's been a busy July. Yeah, it's been a, a heck of a week this week. But let's let's pause on the chaos and frustration of of the now. Let's let's reflect back positively. Last week we had the honor of hosting a national conference uh, on the Gem, Michigan's very own Mackinac Island, was host to the Council of State Restaurant Associations Summer Conference. So people coming from across the country who represent uh, restaurants and hotels in their own states, uh, like we do here in Michigan, people coming from as far as Alaska, yeah, people coming from Puerto, Puerto Rico, Rico, yeah, and, and, and a lot of places in between, we welcomed the new CEO of the National Restaurant Association, Michelle Corsmo, and had a really dynamic conversation uh, about how we all can be working together for the improvement of the industry. Uh, and on top of that, we had perfect weather on the island. It was literally the pristine summer Mackinac Island experience. We got to experience the porch at the Grand Hotel for a lot of people. Great, great views as the sun was going down. Mission Point and Liz Ware hosted the conference, did an amazing job. Phenomenal. Former chair Todd Callowert at the Island House hosted a heck of a lot of dinners and events. I think we did well by him. Uh, Patty and Moskwa and Horns also absorbing a lot of late night activity, frankly, too late night activity. It was a really great event for the industry. It was a proud day for us to have that opportunity. I get to chair this, uh, this organization this year, but Emily actually chaired this conference and the content was as good as the location. So it was amazing top to bottom. So we were happy to have that opportunity. A lot of Michigan pride right now. Emily, what were your thoughts? It's a fun, very busy, but very fun, no complaints week. It's always really inspiring to get together with our counterparts. So it's the state restaurant associations from across the country that come together and talk about ideas and how to better serve our members. And you always walk away with a laundry list of ideas and we're not in competition with each other. So it's nice to just openly talk about how to, how to work better, always inspiring. So a great kickoff to what is a busy July. Absolutely. And increasingly getting busier. How so? Well, so we are recording right now. It is Thursday, July 21st. It's uh, early morning. So we're going to give you updates as, as we understand them right now, have a conversation about this topic as we understand it right now. But after skirting what would have been a ballot proposal uh, on the 2022 general election ballot to increase the minimum wage to $15 and eliminate the tip credit, that short, that short moment of relief quickly gave way to a court of claims judge in Michigan, one man, mm-hmm. declaring that what the legislature did in 2018, the last time this ballot proposal came around, 
So in 2018, there were two ballot proposals. One was a increase the minimum wage to $12 and eliminate the tip credit. Eliminating the tip credit, a really big deal for an organization out of Massachusetts as it relates to Michigan. Why is Michigan the repeated target going back to 2014 and then 2018? And again, this year in 2022, it's, it's, it's unclear why we are home base for this experiment of trying to make Michigan just the eighth state to not have a tip credit. But be that as it may, 2018, how this played out, uh, a ballot proposal for both the minimum wage and then also a, a paid sick leave mandate proposal played out in a way where both received the number of signatures they needed. They were certified to be on the ballot. The legislature then has an opportunity, should they choose to, to adopt each of those citizen-initiated petitions, and which essentially makes them law. It mm-hmm. does not send them to the ballot. It makes them law. Uh, when it does so, the legislature can then amend them, if it so chooses, with uh, like any other law, uh, which means with a simple majority. And that is what happened in 2018. The legislature adopted both of these proposals. So for a short period of time in 2018, the $12 minimum wage with no tip credit was law as it was proposed originally, as was a paid sick leave mandate, which was essentially 72 hours of paid sick leave for employee, employees of almost every employer. But what the legislature came back and did later in 2018 was to amend them. So this is why you always hear, if you hear the term adopt and amend, this is, this is where it originated. Not that common a practice, uh, but they viewed the, each of those proposals as far out of the mainstream nationally and certainly a dramatic change in how Michigan employers would be dealing with these issues and, and sought to amend them and had votes to amend them, took you know, what they believe is their, their, their right and their role as the legislative branch of government in Michigan to amend those, those laws. On the minimum wage, it, it still kept a $12 minimum wage, but spread it out over several years until 2030 uh, before you got to $12 and preserved a tip credit, which is so fundamental. Anyone who's listening to this podcast understands that we know that you believe the tip credit is critical, fundamental to your existence as a full service restaurant. So we take it very seriously and prioritize it and, and lead strategies based upon that. And so we were engaged in that process to help more than anything else to ensure that a tip credit was retained, like is the policy in 43 states right now, uh, right? So Michigan, not exactly out of the mainstream with that concept. And, and also the fact that it, restaurant servers are doing fantastic. And in 2018, you may recall, Emily, the servers came out in droves to the Capitol to tell legislators, we do not like this proposal that eliminates the tip credit. We think it's going to cost some of us jobs and we don't think it's going to make us more money. So let's leave the tip credit uh, in place. Let's leave the tipping system as we understand it right now in place. That was the mood around this issue. But those who led the ballot proposal in 2021 refiled. There's a whole legislative, there's a whole uh, interpretive issue with the Michigan Supreme Court in 2019, where the Michigan Supreme Court decided not to interpret whether adopt and amend was a strategy that was constitutional or not. So the status quo, in other words, the amended versions of these, these two ballot proposals are, are what has been law since that time. A judge on Wednesday, or excuse me, on Tuesday, made a ruling that that process, the adopt and amend is unconstitutional and, and ripped asunder what has been the status quo, both uh, in, in the paid sick leave proposal and the minimum wage proposal. And if that ruling holds, that would immediately, and when I say immediately, there is a 21-day waiting period, essentially. So by August 9th, would immediately eliminate the tip credit. So right now, uh, tipped employees in the, in the state 
make three, most of them, $3.75 an hour cash wage, plus whatever they make in tips. Right now, that average is $24 an hour. It's right. pretty good. Right. It's pretty good. And growing, by the way, fairly quickly. That would eliminate that. That would go to $9.60 right now. And then by 2024, that, that tipped minimum wage would be the exact same as uh, the full minimum wage, making Michigan only the eighth state in the country to operate without a tip credit. Dramatic changes. People in this industry are rightly freaking out. Mm-hmm. We are hearing from them by the minute, by the second. It is the leading national news story. This Michigan case is the leading national news story for anything that is industry specific. I saw it in uh, uh, NRN, Nation's Restaurant News, Restaurant Business Magazine, because it's a big deal. And so the process as it stands, here we are Thursday, the 21st, uh, in, in the early-ish morning, maybe approaching mid-morning at this point, is that we are, we are a, a stay has been filed. Okay. And that would essentially hold in abeyance the ruling, which would say, hold on. Don't implement this change just yet. There will be an appeals process forthcoming. This this case is going to go from what was the court of claims to the court of appeals, where a three judge panel will be selected randomly. We do not know who that judge uh, that that panel would be just yet. That three judge panel uh, would review this case at some point in time. Uh, and the argument behind the stay, which was which was filed yesterday, the twentieth, is to say this has economic wide implications in the state of Michigan. They're dramatic. And it would be very challenging both for the department who has to <laughs> change a regulatory structure on the fly almost immediately, but to all those who have to adhere to it. And if that were to then be shot down and we go ricochet back, boomerang back to what has been the status quo right now, that's chaotic. That's something that no one should want, right? Stability uh, should be uh, the, the ruling uh, compass of the day right now, right? So we are waiting to see at this point in time whether that stay will be granted. We assume it will be, but there's no guarantee that that comes. And if it doesn't, I think it will be a, an unprecedented level of havoc wreaked on this industry after two years of right. havoc wreaked on this industry. Our members are saying early returns, about a third of their, their white staff would be laid off immediately. You're, you're approaching 50,000 employees terminated within, within, let's say, a month of August 9th, that's chaos in the economy. So that is something we are certainly hoping to avoid. A stay at least gives some breathing room. There'll be a legal proceeding to take place at the Court of Appeals. And regardless of how that ruling plays out, one has to assume that that's going to be appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court. So if a stay is granted, you could assume the status quo for upwards of two or maybe even three years, okay. right? Yeah, that was one of my questions. Uh, and it, which is which is um, a long time, mm-hmm. but it'll it'll be interesting to see. So we are we are sort of on pins and needles on, on on where that stay would be, but the the energy and anxiety from this industry right now is in Michigan is on par, and it's from some of our members exceeding the kind of feeling we had uh, in in March and April of 2020. Is it possible that because it's two different things, the appeal process and then the the motion for the stay, right? So it's possible that the appeal process moves forward, but the stay is not granted. Unlikely, or we can't say, but those are two different things. The appeal, and I am not an attorney, the appeal does not have an option to be granted or not. It will, it is, it is automatically granted because, because it is nullifying an existing, an existing law. So that will by right go to the court of appeals. So you can expect an appeal. What the environment where all of our operators are operating in starting on August 9th, which would be the 21 day waiting period after the ruling is what's still in play. So that stay is what's most critically important right now. And what we're still waiting on. And do they take into context the last two years of the industry? 
you know, that is at the discretion of the judge. Okay. Uh, right now, right now, the request is directly to the court of claims judge who made the ruling. The request has a deadline, a requested deadline of August 2nd. Most people believe we're going to hear well in advance of that. Okay. Possibly, so we'll hear possibly today where right? we, 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 it wouldn't be the first time we've put something out on this podcast <laughs> and immediately afterwards, something is uh, dramatically changed. So that's possible here. What is the MRLA doing, right? Like the, we were not a party to this, to this lawsuit that was filed by Mothering Justice and One Fair Wage. These were the parties in the, that were part of the 2018 ballot proposal. The only party withstanding right now is the state of Michigan. Okay. And it, it, it was the state of Michigan, one of the assistant attorneys general who made these uh, filings yesterday for the stay and the right to appeal. We, were, we are talking with our attorneys and trying to get standing if and when this goes to court of appeals. We believe that this industry is in a unique position specifically because of how significantly we will be impacted, how restaurants will be impacted by elimination of the tip credit. And so aggressively, right? Not over periods of time, but immediately going from, from where we are right now, which is 38% to, to 80% and then 90 and then gone in a very, very short order. That is 156% labor increase in 21 days. No one can be prepared for that. And so the fallout will be significant. Menu price increases. Uh, We talked about layoffs of possibly 50,000 people. The early returns we're getting are a third. Some are saying half. I'm trying to be reasonable and not and not go to the extreme but but you know trying to take the middle ground from all of the anecdotal stories I'm hearing of what people are saying that they would need to do to manage that level of wage inflation that quickly. And some of these are going to close. We know that, right? Like there are just a lot of people still in massive debt from from the pandemic and didn't get the relief that they were hoping for. And that ship has sailed at the state and federal level level in most ways right now. So they're swimming in debt and they see this coming on. This is the nail in the coffin. And so you'll see closures again. And I don't say that to be hyperbolic, but that's just sort of the reality of where the industry is right now. It's hard to profit. There's a lot of sagging and lagging debt and, and putting this on top of it would be pure chaos. Last question. Do we have any indication of the makeup time? That's a question we've seen a little bit from members from 2018 or 2019 to now, or will it just be moving forward? If, if this does become reality, there's no makeup from the past, right? As in, would you have to compensate wages going back to 2018 or, or does not say sick time. There's no, there's no damages sought by plaintiffs uh, in the case. Right. So, so even, even one fair wage mothering justice are not requesting backdated. Okay. That's a question we've gotten just the immediate transition to those 2018 versions. Okay. So stay tuned and wait, we could hear as soon as today, by the time this comes out, we could have an update. Yeah. Just understand it is, it is our primary focus. We know how dramatic the impact would be to the industry. Uh, We're having nonstop conversations with the governor's office, the department of labor, who will be challenged with enforcing this Uh, legislators and, and everyone and key industry leaders, as well as our attorneys on this issue of how we can play going forward, a, a larger role in this case, or at least do our best to play a larger role not just as sharing the information of the impact of the industry, but playing a, a legitimate and direct role in the legal proceedings. Okay, it's difficult to come off of that subject into a Pineapple Express current events segment, but let's try to... Yeah, let's try to lighten it back up. Yeah. That's even remotely possible. 
sort of power through it, lighten it up. Okay. So while we were on Mackinac Island, Justin, last week, they were named the number one island in the continental U.S. by Travel and Leisure Magazine, which is huge. It's a huge accomplishment. What a great time for us to be there. I'm still disappointed. I had to lead the board meeting for our organization that was there. I missed the party. There was a whole sip and sail cruise around the island that one Emily Daunt got to partake in. How, I sure did. How, how was that? It was great. It was beautiful. Like a, like an actual victory lap for, for the <laughs> island, which was great and absolutely well-deserved, by the way. Yep. We did a, a champagne toast, the cheers, leaders from all of the hotels and restaurants on the island were on that sip and sail. So it was a really great you know, hospitality industry celebration um, with the Mackinac Island CVB, filmed some stuff for that and got to see all the views of the island. So big accomplishment there. And it really worked out for us to be bringing in, you know, all the other restaurant associations that week. So absolutely. Congratulations to them. Next up, a little over a week ago, federal job data came out and revealed that drumroll, the hospitality industry is not keeping up with increasing the number of workers. Yeah, you just heard me give a long rant about how this is already a challenged industry slowly trying to recover and then now has this tip credit issue thrust upon it almost out of nowhere. The job data is really fascinating in that the economy has recovered, right? Let's let's take a victory lap for the economy overall. Jobs are back essentially at the exact place that they were pre-pandemic in 2019. I believe the stat is literally February 2019. Or excuse me, February 2020, right before uh, the onset of the pandemic and the massive job loss. So overall, we've essentially returned. But the industry, this specific industry, 700,000 fewer jobs than it exists before and is not on pace to recover that number in any short period of time, that there's almost a realization that we are operating in a smaller industry than we were before. And it's not because the demand isn't there. The demand is still there. Operators are trying to use technology to a greater degree than they have before uh, out of necessity. And I think also the the very rapid increase in wages have made it very hard for an industry with low profitability to meet those those needs uh, immediately. So it's a challenge on that front as well, but, but a concerning trend that it's going to take a long time. I believe that, that at this rate of, of job growth, that this industry isn't back nationally to where it was pre-pandemic till around 2024. And that's if the trend lines continue. So uh, stay tuned for that, for more of these. We're going to continue to follow job trends. I, I think it's a big part of our messaging on what we do for workforce development and recruiting and education in this industry to try to um, ignite a passion, if you will, in this industry again, and uh, and, and try to prepare it for everything that comes next, because right now it does not appear we have the workforce to do so. Yeah. And I think that kind of ties into our conversation with our guest today for the podcast, Patrick Bison, where we talk about operating in the modern economy and what does that look like realistically uh, yeah. moving forward into the future. I'm really looking forward to Patrick. You know, it's it's great when we have the opportunity to say, take a step back and and see some and, and have a conversation about the big thing around the and where this industry is going. And it's comforting to know that we have someone there, an organization out there that is doing some of the, the big thing around where we're going and, and how to help this industry safely get to where it's going. So looking forward to that conversation. All right, let's get into it. Okay, today we have Patrick Thyssen with us. Patrick is the president of KMC Strategies and executive director of Americans for a Modern Economy, an organization committed to ensuring that local, state, and federal policies reflect changing technologies that are reshaping the way consumers, businesses, and communities operate in the 21st century economy. 
Patrick has expansive experience in the hospitality and government affairs sectors, spending over 20 years as government government affairs director for McDonald's and then General Electric before starting KMC Strategies, where he leverages 30 years of legislative, public policy, and political experience to represent businesses and associations on the state and local level. Patrick, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to speak with you. How is everything in Michigan today? Oh, it's 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 been an interesting week in Michigan. We can get to that in, a little bit later, but we want to we want to ease into this conversation with you, Patrick. You have a, a long history in this industry, even with trade associations uh, to some extent. So this is great. You you are you are in our uh, playground on this one, which is good. You have experience in in, in what we do and in, in the industry that that we talk about and represent. What, can you share a little bit uh, of that with us? Absolutely. And, and, and thank you, Justin, Emily, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and um, there's a couple of things I'd like to kind of highlight here as we, as we get, get into our, our discussion today, which uh, I know is going to be um, very topical and, and, uh, and energetic. You know, I've, I've a lot of admiration. Those are lofty expectations, by the way. <laughs> I have a lot of admiration for both the state of Michigan and the Michigan Restaurant Lodging Association. You know, from from a personal background, my family and I have a summer home actually in Sister Lakes, Michigan. And, you know, we've been going up there for over 30 years. My wife's been going up there for over 50 years. And, you know, we frequent a lot of restaurants in that area. You know, great local places like the Wounded Minnow and the Woodfire Grill and Strand and and a great breakfast place in St. Joe's, the Mason Jar, which I always look for that Michigan Restaurant Association logo on the windows as we go in. And and in fact, a little side note, my, my wife and I, 33 years ago almost, were engaged in Mackinac Island. So oh. we have a lot of a lot of ties to to Michigan, and um, and I also, as you noted, have a lot of professional interaction with Michigan Restaurant Association. You know, for uh, for 15 years, I had the pleasure of of working with that little mom and pop hamburger company called McDonald's, <laughs> and um, we worked very closely. And I will tell you that uh, I know your members understand the impact and the importance of having trade groups like the Michigan Restaurant Association on their side. You all, with your expertise and being able to explain and serve as advocates for them, because as you know, most even most McDonald's franchisees are truly small business owners. You know, when I was there, the average McDonald's franchisee owned about. 2.7 2.7 restaurants, and they're in their restaurants day in, day out, um, serving customers, addressing issues, giving back to the community like, like all your other members do. And it's difficult for them to both understand and engage in the legislative and political process. And that's why it's always important for them to have such strong advocates like you all, because um, they need it. And they need, and legislators need to understand the impact of public policy on small business owners. So kudos to you all. And I know that that relationship continues to thrive in the business front. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and shout out to our own Sean Saputo, a McDonald's operator based out of the East Lansing area. Uh, yes. who's on our board of directors, great operator, great member of our board of directors. 
Uh, so you were at McDonald's for a long time. That is the tip of the spear. McDonald's gets virtually no credit for all of the innovative things it does, uh, how the, the creative ways in which it, it elevates employees, but it is always at the tip of the spear for not doing enough. The, the, the protests always center on McDonald's because it is always the 800 pound gorilla in the room, which is challenging and hard, but I guess that's what comes when you are, or you are number one and number one by a, a long shot. What? What it's, it's interesting right now because McDonald's seems to be in the news again, this time for some franchise or franchisee tension a little bit. You know, you probably are watching that from afar, maybe relieved, frankly, that you're not directly <laughs> in that right now. But any perspective yeah. on what's going on there and, and, and where you see that that might be heading? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I when I was at McDonald's, the, the number one poison pill for for legislative action was franchising laws and, and regulations that would impede the relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee. There were several uh, situations where there were um, bottling companies for soft drink brands that um, had territory fights, which drove a lot of a lot of discussion on the franchising provisions within states. It also had to do really with some other brands back in back. I'm talking back in the '90s. A lot of other brands that. Uh, mandated how uh, franchisees bought their product, who they bought it from, and, and the cost, if you will. You know, McDonald's has a unique relationship with their franchisees. And, you know, Ray Kroc used to talk about um, the three-legged stool, the first leg being the corporate entity, the second leg being the franchisees, which is the most important part in my mind, and the third part being the suppliers. You know, most people don't understand when I left I believe the stat was about 80% of McDonald's restaurants were franchised. I now believe that that because they sold off a lot of their corporate stores, I believe it's closer to 90%. So 90% of those individuals are small business owners that on a day in day out basis um, need to meet their payroll, got to figure out sales, uh, work with their colleagues to develop marketing programs, and are great, great, great citizens within their community. And that's the real power, in my mind, of the, the model, are those franchisees. Because I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the stat. I believe it's upwards of 60% of the McDonald's franchisees started as crew kids. So if people forget, or they don't understand, maybe is a better way to say it, is a McDonald's is really a beginning, not an end, right? Yeah. So if you want to start with a McDonald's and you want to stay there and you want to grow and you want to grow within the company, you want to grow within a franchising system and you have the goal of becoming an operator, it's real. It can happen. That's, but what's really well within, said. And you still yeah. got it. I, 10 years gone, you still have you still have it down. It must be being a, a government affairs advocate is is almost like ride a bike. You never forget. You got it's 10 years, 10 years gone since you're at McDonald's and you still have uh, uh, the perspective, the passion and, and, and some of those key talking points down. I, it's amazing. Well, uh, Justin, that's because I know. And the part I'm passionate about is even though I've been gone McDonald's for 10 years, there's still 15 franchisees that I still have a strong relationship with. That's because they were, they were my eyes and ears on legislative issues. You all know that when you go into a state capital on a, an issue that the Michigan Restaurant Association, while very eloquent and very to the point and very educated, 
with information is great. When you bring a small business owner, Tip O'Neill said it best, all politics are local, right? You bring a small business owner into see a, a state representative or a state senator, and they hire 60, 70 employees, you know, in each restaurant, they're going to listen, right? And it's a whole different perspective. And they're much better, they're, they're better able to articulate the impact of different policies on their bottom line than I am. Yep. 100%. 100% true. They hear from us every day, maybe too much. Uh, right. That's exactly right. Happy and relieved to see a constituent and see what, what the policies and how they actually play out in their own community with their own constituencies. So that's well said. But I want to pivot to the, to the reason you're here with us today. And I'm excited to have this conversation. You are the president of KMC Strategies, but also the executive director uh, of Americans for a Modern Economy. What is Americans for a Modern Economy and, and how does it relate to the hospitality industry? Absolutely. So the, the Americans for a Modern Economy is, is, uh, is an organization that we created that is really committed to ensuring that state, local, and federal policies reflect changing technologies that are reshaping the way consumers and businesses operate in the 21st century. You know, we all work, you know, with consumer advocates, business groups, think tanks, economic experts, and others to raise the awareness and discussions about future policy and the impact of new technology. It's important for legislators and lawmakers to develop modern solutions that benefit all Americans and business owners. You know, I, I think about think back to, you know, when I first started in this business almost 40 years ago, the change in the environment and the business model and the type of businesses that are out there that have evolved over the last 40 years is, is actually, it's actually amazing. And you add to that the fact that the states are always trying to keep up with ever-changing technology and business models to make sure that workers and benefits and, and programs are, are, are the ones that are best available to them while preserving you know, free market competition. Patrick, what are some of those public policy issues that you guys are focused now on in 2022? You know, they're, they're very similar to what you all are dealing with in the in Michigan Restaurant Lodging Association. So, for example, you know, we talked about the changing environment of the workplace. You know, pre-COVID and post-COVID businesses are light years different, right? I mean, you know, most, most restaurants prior to COVID, takeout was a good percentage of their business. I, I don't know what the industry average is, but I'm, I'm going to guess, you know, let's just, let's just say hypothetically it was 25% of, you know, white tablecloth and, and uh, fast casual, you know, I got to believe that's almost doubled. So you've gone from uh, people come in and sit in your restaurant. And while that's still important, and actually I will tell you, it's my preference. I love going and sitting in a restaurant. I love seeing people. I love watching interaction. I love, uh, conversing with the wait staff and figuring out their life story and everything else. There's a lot of people because of the pace of, of um, society today and families on the run that the takeout business has exploded. And it's, it's, and so therefore the business model has changed. You know, I, I look at restaurants and I, I now see how individuals that used to be waiting tables 
the drive-through staff and the take takeout staff has like doubled and being able to get people through drive-through and having a designated parking spots for food delivery services is something that never existed or rarely existed bef- before COVID. So uh, the whole, and then of course, you've got the whole alcohol issue that I know you all ha- have been in the forefront on where takeout alcohol and, and delivery of alcohol has really changed and how the business model has been impacted uh, pre-COVID. And we're going to continue to see it as the gig economy continues to drive things. You know, for example, one of the one of the issues we spent a lot of time on is telehealth. You know, back when I first started in the working world, you know, you had a doctor's appointment. You, uh, you know, you went to see your boss. You said, hey, I got a doctor's appointment, my annual physical or whatever it may be. And you, you, you go, it takes an hour to get to the doctor's office. You sit around, not to disparage the doctors, but they're busy. So it's not like you walk in and walk out. And um, you go through your appointment, get some blood drawn, whatever it may be, and you leave and you drive back to the office. And that's a three-hour process. I mean, today, telehealth is such an incredible opportunity because you can go have a dedicated area in a conference room or in in a booth, and you can call into your doctor, you can explain your ailments, you can, you know... You can FaceTime them. And it really, telehealth has exploded and it's actually been good, in my my opinion, for both businesses and for the individual because it allows you to better schedule and it also um, is a time saver. So, you know, we continue to look for ways telehealth is so important to to businesses and individuals that, you know, we're out there advocating for continuous changes to the model, if you will. Yeah, that's a good point. One of our value services for the association for our members is Teladoc by United Health Group. And that's something that we didn't have on our list before the pandemic. And it makes it easier, more accessible and not so expensive for employers and employees. So that's a good point. Absolutely. And I'm sure your members love that because as small business owners, right, (laughs) and and, and having the availability, their ability for their employees to to not lose time or not lose a shift because they're going to the doctor is, is so critically important. Yeah. And not to mention, you know, the other part of it is that as a reason, I think there's a lot of different formulas and that you could have a whole topic on this with real experts, but you know, the whole mental health challenge in our country today with young children and being um, locked down, if you will, during COVID and, and all the experience that happened to them, you know, I got to believe that the uh, the mental health space and use of tele, teledoc and telehealth has just exploded. And uh, I think, I hope that relieves some of the pressure and gives greater access to uh, services that uh, those people need. Patrick, you talked about the the changing nature of the labor side of, of this industry. You talked, I think, first about the, the gig the gig economy and how that is changing, how Uber has changed the concept. We're yep. seeing it play out across the world right now. I think it's really interesting what you're seeing happening with Uber in Australia and finding almost a third version of an employee, not a full-time employee, not a part-time employee, but a, a new approach to what being a gig economy style employee is. And there seems to be a 
big place for that in this industry as we go forward, especially with some of the labor challenges. But people are always concerned, especially those working full time uh, about health benefits. And so talk to me a little bit about what you guys are doing around portable benefits and and how that fits into this industry going forward. You know, that's that's a really a great lead in and it's and it's so accurate. You know, my wife and I have four children and I've had multiple conversations with them. You know, I I was fortunate in my career that I had exposure to Fortune two Fortune 50 companies in my lifetime. You know, I worked for one for 15 years and I worked for General Electric for 10. You know, I've said to my my children, our children that I don't believe any of them will ever work for our business for 15 or 10 years. The economy has changed so much. The the business models have changed so much. There's so much innovation that there there is going to be just additional, I don't know what they are, but there's going to be more seismic changes. So as you look at that, as you transfer businesses and you look at husbands and wives and single moms and single dads and young kids coming out of college, you know, to your point, there's a hybrid between full-time and part-time and and how those exchange and how they interact. And, you know, in in our mind for the Americans for a modern economy, portable benefits, it's not an issue of if, but when, you know, we're going to continue to work on the transition of, of a, delivery economy that includes expansion um, of a lot of available products and consistency in job classification, innovation and delivery of methods. You know, the gig economy has really altered the workforce. You know, under a portable benefits model, the benefits would travel with the employee. So paid sick leave, vacation time, insurance, workers comp would all travel with the employee. So as you transition from job to job, or you're within a job that may not offer full benefits, there are numerous proposals. You know, Senator Mark Warner on the federal level has uh, has, uh, introduced um, legislation that uh, deals with portable benefits. And there are a couple of of, uh, countries that have uh, taken on this initiative where it's either, there's there's a couple models. You know, there's, there's a model where, you would have employers that would fund fund this for employees, and then workers would be able to use the money in account to secure benefits, whether or not it's putting money into retirement account or paying for health benefits or getting paid time off. You know, Australia is um, is looking into this and has been a leader, and Ottawa and Canada have also been uh, big proponents of creating uh, a portable benefit model. And a lot of them have bipartisan support. So we're going to continue to see this, I think, heading into the 2023 session. And we've you know, heard states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and um, New York that are continuing to look at uh, portal benefits model. So I'm, I'm hearing in the back of my head, our, our independent members, our, our independent hotel, independent restaurant operators, not, not exactly at their most profitable place ever at the moment saying, well, this all sounds great. And we all want to make sure we're taking care 
uh, of our team members and making sure that they're well, that they feel like they're taken care of. What's this going to cost me? Because I'm not exactly at the best position right now to continue to layer on more, more costs in my business. So how is the, how's the small independent supposed to think about what, what may be coming here in the portable benefit space? Yeah, so that's a great question. We listen, and we all know the impact that uh, a lot of business regulations can have on, on small business owners and, and uh, independent operators. But I think at the same time, there's a real challenge And as we all know, trying to secure and retain employees has gotten so difficult. It it, it actually, it absolutely amazes me the challenges that, as I talk to restaurateurs uh, and the impact they had, that COVID and people just deciding to exit the workforce has on employee retention. So in my mind, the way I look at it is it's really an opportunity for them to figure out what their workers' biggest needs are, right? Insurance is such an important element of any worker, of any worker's benefits, not to mention retirement and other things. So there is going to be some discussions. Some models are run privately and some are run by discussions are run publicly where um, cities may set up funds to monitor these benefits within a location. So we're really in the infancy. I think the, the biggest thing is that it's important to have the dialogue, right? It's important to make sure people are at the table and are discussing these issues because they are so important to both employers and employees. So true. One other issue that we've been spending a lot of time on lately, this has not always been in the repertoire, but we're seeing it in polling of our own members Mm-hmm. Uh, increasingly is is the concern of affordable housing for the workforce in this industry. And it has, you know, I think part of it is the, is the uh, real estate bubble, if you will, uh, that we're all experiencing right now. Part of it is short-term rental that is, is, is gobbling up, especially in vacation areas uh, like Southwest Michigan, where you uh, yep. enjoy the sister lakes, but it's impacting the industry and in, in the ability to live close by where they are. You guys are doing some work in this space as it relates to security deposits. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? You know, I'm going to tell you what, as I, as I look at young people coming out of college today, it, it's pretty amazing the impact that rents and security deposits have on individuals. So, you know, a young man or a young woman comes out of college and hypothetically they've got, pick a number, right? 60, 80, $100,000 in debt from, from college. They're, they're going to work for a corporation that they are excited about, whether it be, you know, McDonald's or, or uh, Whirlpool or Amazon, whoever it may be. And you decide you're going to relocate to, you know, Lansing, Michigan, or Austin, Texas, or Seattle, Washington, and you go to move out there. And just, let me rent- just say thank you for including Lansing <laughs> on that list of, of where people might actually choose to move, whether that's true or not. God bless you for at least mentioning us. And, and, and I would like to just throw out there a little bit, go green. Mm. Go white. Go white. There you go. I like that. Very good. But anyways, Justin, uh, to your point, they, um, they've, they've got a lot of debt. They need to potentially get a car there. They've got expenses. The cost of housing has just gone through the absolute roof. I mean, what, what rent, what people are getting for rent these days in my mind is absolutely, it's amazing. So you try to throw on that the thought that is a lot of locations as you, as you go to move in, they have pretty stringent security deposit requirements, right? 
two, three months rent up front. So what we've really done is we think that remodeling the security deposit portion of a rental agreement is, is, is really important. And uh, we think it's important to kind of restrict how security deposits are managed, limiting the maximum amount of deposit required, and also maybe providing a window where um, you can pay it over uh, months. So it's not all due up front. Because, you know, as you think of, uh, let's say you're hypothetically, you know, in the city of Chicago, it's not uncommon to pay, you know, for a studio, $2,000 a month. And you've got to put two or three months up front at $6,000 you got to come up with before you even move into your place. So the, uh, we truly believe that in terms of affordable housing, one of the ways is to take the weight off the uh, rental renter in the front end of the process. And uh, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of provisions, you know, some of your more progressive communities like uh, Seattle, Washington and, and Austin have uh, started to tackle these issues. Well, Patrick, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I really, it, it's good to know, you know, we feel like we're on the front lines every day out yep. there advocating for and defending and promoting this industry. It is good to know that we have a, a think tank, someone doing some of the, 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 the big think things for the future of this industry and, and help guide it to a better future than where it is right now. Because as you know, and I know, restaurant operators, operators are immersed in their day-to-day. There are almost, there's always a crisis of the day that's right in front of their face. And it is hard for a lot of independent operators to deal with those while also thinking long-term about the future of their business. So uh, I hope listeners understand that it's, that we have some help out there. Americans for a modern economy is not exclusive to the hospitality and then the restaurant industry, but you're doing a lot of work that relates to this industry Uh, for listeners who want to hear more, learn more, where can they go to learn about Americans for a modern economy? Well, the great question. And thank you. So a couple things, you know, our website is Americans for a modern economy.org. You know, we've got a total handle that's uh, at for a modern economy. And we're also at uh, on LinkedIn at uh, Americans for a modern economy. So I want to thank you all for allowing us to kind of talk about some issues that we see as the forefront that are important to employers and employees. But before we go, I, I have a question, if if I can, for Emily. That conducting I, this interview. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's all I good. Like this. I like this so question I, for Emily. You know, I, I enjoy reading bios and learning about people and background. So I see that you're a board member of an organization in her name foundation. So I have a daughter that uh, was a college athlete, and I, I see that <clears throat> the foundation is involved with young female athletes to, uh, to talk about their experience and encourage them participation. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that organization. Wow. This is an unsolicited <laughs> plug. A great organization. Uh, this is great, Patrick. Emily, do share some, share Com- some out. completely unrelated to MRLA or anything. And I'm interested in how you found, I guess maybe my LinkedIn, you found that, but that's some serious research. Yeah. The In Her Name Foundation, it's a relatively new foundation that actually was started by the mother of one of our coworkers, Jenna Swain, who works at the MRLA. Shout I, out Jenna Swain. Yeah. Ironically kind of related. Yeah. So she's passionate about bringing making sports more accessible to women and girls and specific, I mean, it's pretty specific to the Lansing area right now because it is a, 
a newer startup. We've really been hosting events and and being more aggressive in that space for uh, we're in our second year now. And yeah, it's a really great organization that just wants to provide accessibility to sports to get more um, women and girls involved in sports. We there were three high schools in the Lansing area last year that didn't have a varsity women's basketball team because they didn't have enough interest. So what? Yeah, starting that interest at a younger age and it's, you know, it's open to any ages, but if you can start at the younger age and boost that up, Justin's kids, Justin's daughter has been to one of our events before. So awesome. Yeah. And an inaugural attendee and it was a great event. Yeah. And Justin, what's, what's your, what's your daughter's um, sport of choice? She's hardcore into soccer. Uh, Is she? she? She's she's a soccer player. She likes some other sports, but soccer is her favorite. So I'm curious if she's ever been exposed to any interest in lacrosse. Uh, not yet. The, the Winslows are not large of frame. Uh, it may not be the best choice for her, but I, we're going to let her uh, experiment with every sport she wants to and, and, and kind of not, not micro target her just yet. So if she has interest, that's, that'd be great. Oh, that's great. What a great organization. Congratulations to you for, for giving back and, and being involved in that because, you know, getting young people, as you indicated, uh, involved uh, with both team and individual sports is so important as they as they mature and understand the value of working together. I mean, you look at the Michigan Restaurant Association and and how you work with each other and, and with your members to advocate for issues and provide solutions to them. You know, teamwork uh, and understanding the importance of working a team starts at a young age. Definitely. So true. All right, we're, we're pivoting. This is we're going to go back. It's lightning round time for you, Patrick. This is, this is how Emily leads it. She hits you with a lot of questions, hard and fast. Are you ready? Uh, are you, let's rock and roll. <laughs> All you're, right. you're the first guest I actually didn't send the questions to in advance. Oh, wow. Holy cow. I think you'll be able to handle it. So I'll oh, just hit can... you with a few questions and you give us your first thought. All right. Uh, Patrick, what is your, we may have already hit this go-to place to visit in Michigan. Let's say not the sister lakes area. If you had to pick another place, I would say that, you know, I, can I, let me, let me tell you what I, I found a new place that I actually really enjoy and you're probably going to know it, but I don't, I mean, I know it. I, I was there. We have a, a golden retriever and I drove to there's a, there's a trail that runs from South Haven to Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo. the Calhaven trail. Hmm. Bingo. Yeah. And beautiful. I, now so, you're getting into my board service on the trails yeah. and greenways Alliance. I love it. So I last oh, 4th of July weekend, I, I needed to get out and get some exercise. So I looked up this trail and uh, our golden and I went for a six mile walk, three miles out, three miles back on this trail that was absolutely spectacular. So love South Haven. It's to begin with this just added to it. And I will tell you, it was absolutely spectacular trail. What uh, state of Michigan has done for that. I told my brother-in-law when I got back that I would, uh, that he and I need to do uh, uh, the ride. It's 40 miles. I believe we're not going to do 80 but what we could do is, you know, maybe have someone drop us off in, in Kalamazoo and, and drive and ride the bike to South Haven. But I, I absolutely love that trail. And I will tell you, at the three-mile marker, there was a blueberry, you pick blueberry stand. Hmm. And while thrilled 
to find it. I was upset I found it because the blueberry muffins and the blueberry lemon cookies. Oh my God. Uh, an endorsement. The, the Michigan travel oh. office right now is just going to just replicate this and, and use this all over. This is fantastic. Yeah. It, great. It, it, it's great. And that there were all the thing I love about those trails and why it's so awesome is that you had people walking, you had people running, you had people riding their bikes. I had an older couple that, you know, was probably in their early eighties that were walking and sat on a bench, were eating a lunch it was just so the the all types of lifestyles and people and ages and and everything were out there. So I, I do want to give a shout out to that new find. The other area that my wife and I are going to explore in Michigan in August is we're going up to the UP and we're going to do some hiking up there. And um, I, I really look forward to that. You're going to love it. There's it's it's even more rustic and far more remote in the UP. You will love it. We're going to go to the next question. Go. Emily, go. All right. What's the last show that you streamed? Oh, the last show we streamed was DB Cooper. Do you guys know DB Cooper? Sure. Yeah. So it's this, it's the, it's a Netflix series. I think it's six parts on DB Cooper. Who's the guy that hijacked the plane in the seventies and uh, jumped out with $200,000 and they're trying to figure out if he's still alive or not. So that was the last program I I streamed. There was a bar in the town where I grew up uh, that was literally called DB Coopers. And I think it was for specifically shady types of characters uh, in in the area, but it was a, it was a special place. Uh, So yeah. So, so, so that means you frequent it, Justin? Or <laughs> shady I, I may or may not have popped in once or twice. Just shady saying. character. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you a text or a phone call guy? Phone call all day, every day. I, I, yeah, I, I understand texting and it's got a rule, but I fear that we're losing the personal interaction and exchange of individuals. That's that's so important. And I try to. I sound old, and my kids will tell me all the time, but we're, we're, we're still a relationship world and um, getting to know people and getting to know about them and understanding who they are. It can't be done in a text. It's got to be done sitting across from somebody or, or uh, on a phone call and uh, you hear their passion and compassion and excitement for various things. So I'm a, I'm phone guy all day. All right. What's the last song that you listened to? The last song that I listened to. Wow, that's a really good one. Well, I listen to songs all the time. Can I, uh, well, the last song that I listened to was probably Roll Me Away by Bob Seger. Michigan's uh, own Bob Seger. Phenomenal fan of Bob Seger. I I love that song, Roll Me Away. And um, my children actually for Christmas got me a, a board that has the words to roll me away. And it sits in my office and Bob Seeger, of course, as you indicated from Michigan. And, and I love the story about him that, you know, he was, he was good friends with, um, I, I don't think it was Henley. It was Glenn Fry, one of the Eagles. He was good friends with in Michigan and they took off for California and, <laughs> Bob Seeger's mom told him he couldn't go. 
<laughs> so Seeger stuck around. Gotta listen um, to mom. Michigan. And uh, anyway, so uh, I, like I love the whole story and big fan of big fan of Bob Seeger. I think he's um, a really talented individual. And uh, we were thrilled when uh, I got to see him in concert. Well, there you go, Joe. That's going to be our outro music uh, for, for this specific episode of the pod. <laughs> I love it. Uh, all right. I'm going to get you out on this. We're on my turf now. Who wins an NBA championship first, the Bulls or the Pistons? Oh, God, not even close. Are you kidding me? That's not even a question. That's so like Pistons. that's that's like comparing Michigan State's basketball team to Central Michigan's. Oh, <laughs> Emily. Sorry, Emily. I just had to throw that out there. <laughs> this is brutal. <laughs> so you're saying the Pistons. Great. This is good news. No, it's the Bulls <laughs> all day, every day. Are you kidding me? You got to remember, I was a season ticket holder for the Chicago Bulls during the Jordan years. Well, sure, and, but and, we're not living in the 90s anymore. And the man. bad boys. It doesn't matter. The Pistons, <laughs> the, the Pistons are always going to be the second team. That's just the way it is. Fight, fight, fight. This is far too contentious a way to get uh, uh, but, uh, but I love the passion. I, this is what makes being a sports fan fun is, is these kind of conversations, rivalries. Uh, the Bulls are in good shape. They're certainly more likely to make the playoffs sooner, but I like the Pistons upside for the future. We shall see. We shall you know, see. they've had a really good draft. And, and, and I do, I will tell you, I think the Pistons are on, are on, on the right path. I really do. And I will tell you this. The game has changed so much. It's unbelievable how basketball has evolved. And you think back to the days of the microwave and, and all those people, you know, Vinnie Johnson and, and all those players were so far ahead of the game. I mean, the three-point shot now is like people turn down layups to take three-point shots, which is absolutely uh, amazing. But at the same time, they've become so proficient at it that statistically – it makes a lot of sense. So I agree that Pistons have done a really, really got good job with the draft. And um, I think they're on, uh, on the right path. One other uh, Michigan tie, if I can give you regarding sports. So you'll have to look out for a young man, actually two young men. Scott Daly plays for the Detroit Lions. He's the long snapper. And I coached Scott. He's my son Matthew's age in baseball as a young man. So I ruined that career. So he went to become a football player. (laughs) And he's a long snapper for the Detroit Lions. Uh, He was signed last year. And then uh, the Aquano boys, Romeo, and I forget his brother's name, were played for Notre Dame. My other son's friends were roommates with them at Notre Dame. And you want to talk about an incredible family. Uh, What an awesome family. So I, while I'm a Bears fan, I do have some ties to to the Lions that uh, I, so I look out for them whenever they're on. You're practically a Michigan citizen at this point. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll talk to the governor and see what we can do. But, uh, and by the way, I will tell you the other thing I'm going to tell you just regarding Michigan sports. In my opinion, second best running back of all time, Barry Sanders. Oh boy, <laughs> the guy the, the guy was unbelievable. He was absolutely. I mean, he broke more ankles. There were doctors that made millions off him because, you know, players had to come see him after um, after he broke their ankles. He was he was unbelievable. Barry Sanders was phenomenal. But like too many, too many great Lions retired early instead of continuing yeah. to play anymore. That's right. Right. Lions. 
Patrick Dyson, thank you so much for taking the time, sharing your expertise uh, and, and sharing a little of what Americans for a Modern Economy does and how it's looking out for this industry. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to uh, seeing you in the future. All righty. Take care, my friends. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.